Father, we thank you so much for the, the, the wonderful glory you reveal to us of yourself. Thank you for the privilege and delight of being able to come around your word and hear you speak. Father, I'm aware of my weakness and uh, your strength. You're the God who speaks. So I pray that what's been prepared would help build up, challenge, be used by you, Father, and your Holy Spirit. Lord, be at work in each one of us, wherever we stand with you today. Please speak into our lives that we might go from here changed. Amen. Well, not only do I wear a jacket that has elbow bands, I also love listening to Desert Island Discs on Radio 4. Now, you're, you're starting to get a good picture of what a Church of England minister is. Um, for those of you who don't know, Desert Island Discs is a British institution on Radio 4. It's been going since uh, 1947. And um, over more, more than 3,000 episodes have been recorded. And it is amazing who they've had on there as guests. Uh, and for those of you who don't know the structure, uh, basically guests are invited to choose eight pieces of music which they would have if they were uh, whisked away and washed up on this imaginary desert island. They're also asked to choose uh, a luxury. They're given the complete works of Shakespeare, the Bible, and they can choose a luxury or whatever. But at the end of the uh, programme, and, and the eight pieces of music sort of become the framework for an interview about their life, their work, that sort of thing. Um, at the end of it, they're asked to save one piece of music. Now, two weeks before Christmas, uh, the guest was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. And um, interestingly, the piece of music that he nominated that he would save from the waves was Matt and Beth Redmond's Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. It was one of those lovely moments on, on, on radio, in the media. We just hear someone, we've already heard the song played, so you get this wonderful gospel song. But just there, uh, Justin Welby says, that's the one I choose. Why? Well, because it sums up his dependence on the grace of God throughout the whole of life, through the highs and lows. We've sung plenty of awesome songs already this morning, but let me just refresh uh, your memory with some of the words from that song, Blessed be, the name of, uh, blessed be Your Name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. What songs would make up the soundtrack of your life? What would be the song you hold on to, the song you sing? What's the song, as Bono put it, that's in your head, that you hear in your head in those moments of solitude? I must admit, annoyingly, at the moment, I can't get rid of Do You Want to Build a Snowman? <laughs> from Frozen. So it is wonderful to come to church and sing great songs and try and provide some antidote. But I must admit, I've found Isaiah 25 has been a wonderful antidote as I've studied it and looked at it. Because in this beautiful chapter of scripture, within this breathtaking prophecy, God has given us, his people, his church, an anthem of praise. Not just for 2015, not just for 8th century Israel, not just for Manchester, but for the world. Not just for life, but for eternity. In these spirit-inspired lyrics, we find much to focus and realign our hearts, to feed our minds, to fuel our devotion, to drown out the world's songs. 
competing for our loyalty and love. Isaiah 25 is a song for the good times and the hard times. So in the next sort of 25 minutes or so, I'm going to pull out some stuff that I hope fuels your appetite and hunger for God. I thought first what we'll do is we'll have a bit of background. Um, sorry, Arsenal, get rid of the Arsenal fans singing. Um, here's a bit of a map. I hope you can see it. If you want to, if you go on the ESV online, that these resources are online. It's helpful. I find the pictures help me understand what I'm reading and where it fits in. But essentially, Isaiah was a prophet working in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, Judah. And um, he was working there from about 740 BC through to about 681 at least, a good 60-year innings there. Um, it was a difficult time for Judah. The Assyrian superpower that you can see over as what we now know as uh, sort of Iran, Iraq, um, they were in control. They were crushing all the nations around. They were crushing Judah through taxation, through the threat of invasion, Judah's kings, Jotham, Ahaz, they were half-hearted. Hezekiah, he was a good guy, but also sort of blew with the wind a bit. Didn't deliver on, the, on God's word, but then tried to make good. It was a country that lurched from crisis to crisis. And interestingly, spiritually, there was a lot of good stuff said from the front, as it were. But it was hollow. The creed that the Lord God was king was sounding a bit empty. In the midst of this, Isaiah encounters the Lord, chapter 6, one of the standout chapters where Isaiah is called into service. And he has a vision of the Lord God, high and exalted, in his full glory. And it lays him out. It slays him. Whoa, it's me. And yet atonement is made. A way for him to serve the Lord God is provided by God. And the message he's given over these 66 chapters is one long prophetic journey from old Jerusalem to God's new city. From old creation to new creation. The vision is one of restoration which centres all on the Lord God. The Holy One of Israel. What he will do through his anointed king. And chapters 13 to 21 are a series of prophecies. What's just happened is we've had a series of prophecies of judgment which focus on the nations surrounding Jerusalem. So all of these places listed up here get their own word of warning from God via, uh, via Isaiah. And then here, in, the, in chapters 24 to 27, which follows a block, we're lifted, as it were, out of around 701 BC. We're lifted out of that history and whoosh, whooshed into the future. We get a, a, a panorama of the end of history. We get a breathtaking vision of how things will be. Chapter 24 speaks of an inescapable judgment that falls on a rebellious world. Chapter 25, we get a glimpse of glory. This is a celebration song, and it's in three parts. Just look at the structure with me. Um, verses 1 to 5, you see there that that is um, a song sung by an individual, by Isaiah. It's a song of praise. It's an emotive, personal, intensely deep, a spontaneous prayer of praise. And then in verses 6 to 8, 
in the center, this is the hinge, and in some ways it's very much the hinge of that section, 13 to 27. But in verses 6 to 8, the center is this feast, this festival, this coronation feast on the mountain of God. And then the second song, from verses 9 to 12, is one, actually, interestingly, sung by the church. Can you see in verse 9? In that day, they will sing. This is God's people together praising. So I just give you that structure so you get a handle on how the, the, the chapter works. And then hopefully you can see where I get my points from. So first thing is, as we come to think about, okay, so what is it that Isaiah 25 gives us to sing about? What is it that will fuel our praise as we journey with God through life? The first thing I want to say is that we praise God for his faithfulness and power to save. We praise God for his faithfulness and power to save. Look at verse 1 with me. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. Why? For your perfect faithfulness. You have done wonderful things. Things planned long ago. We just jump to verse 4. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. Isaiah is deeply moved and impressed by the sheer power of the Lord's deeds. They are marvellous works. Literally, acts that are supernatural. They're beyond human power. And indeed, that word, wonderful things, wonderful, marvellous, that they're verbs that are used of nouns, if I've got the grammar right, in Isaiah 9, 6, where we sing, wonderful, counsellor. So these link thematically to the promise of God's king coming. This is the Lord who works supernaturally. Well, what comes to mind... What would be in Isaiah's mind as he's reflecting on this praise and singing it out? What are those marvellous acts? Well, yeah, creation. Nothing, everything, by the word of God. Yes, the promise to Abraham to make a great nation from a family, from his family that will bless the world. A promise that seemed ludicrous given Abram's age and Sarah's infertility. And yet, according to God's promise, a nation is born. He is faithful. He does deliver. And then, yes, you guys, certainly you should be on the ball here because Mike's just preached through it. Exodus. Yeah? You can't get away from that in the Bible. All roads lead back, not to Egypt, but to that redemption. The Exodus of Israel. God's plan devised in eternity, timed according to his will, executed in his strength. Saving Israel from their enemy, Egypt. Saving Israel for himself, for worship. A marvellous, wonderful act. Perhaps Isaiah meditated on God's faithfulness and power in bringing his people into the promised land, in settling them in the land he had promised Abram. Maybe he meditated on the faithfulness of God to his anointed king, David. Who through everything he went through was established as the chosen king. Whose son Solomon, by grace, was able to build the temple, the symbolic home of Yahweh. The center point of worship for God's people. Now we need to remember, this is not an easy song for Isaiah to sing. He wasn't at the equivalent of Spring Harvest or Word Alive 
every day where things just happen nicely and we can sing great praise songs. He was up against it. He was facing opposition. He was facing threat for his life. His colleagues derided him. They called him false. He had a message the kings were not listening to. He was in a bleak situation. But Isaiah looks back to rejoice in God's past work. He looks ahead to the certain future because God is perfect in faithfulness. And this joint perspective is a strong anchor in the present. Can you see that? And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, this is our song too. We look back, don't we, to the great salvation, one on the cross, where Jesus, the servant king, prophesied in Isaiah 53, is the one who gave his life in our place, taking the punishment of sin on himself. We know God's perfect faithfulness to save us from hell because we look back to the resurrection of Jesus, the assurance of victory, God's marvellous act. We look forward as well with Isaiah to that day when we join in the song of heaven in God's presence. Verse 9, in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That is our song, friends, this morning. This isn't dry, half-hearted school assembly singing. Uh, For those of you who love Eddie Izzard, I love the bit. There's a stand-up point where he talks about going into church and all the singing is like, oh, 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 yeah. And yet... Um, The black churches are full of praise and gospel singing and it's ah, la, la, and that's born out of slavery and oppression. It's interesting, Eddie Izzard has no religious beliefs at all, isn't a Christian, but he can see the difference the gospel makes. You have been saved, sing praise. And we have a phenomenal heritage with our black brothers and sisters who have written songs that come out of oppression but celebrate salvation. This is not dry, half-hearted, just from the neck up singing. The song flows from a personal walk with God. But I think, if we're honest, instinctively we kick against this. We kind of want to take some of the credit. God's powerful, but surely I brought something to the deal. After all, I did the research I went to at least two Christianity Explores. I watched that annoying video that, on YouTube by William Lane Craig or whoever it was. I, I engaged. I went to church at least 50 times. I had to sit through several sermons. And I even served. God was onto a winner when he saved me. No. Reverend Liam Golliger, not Gallagher, um, senior minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, explains it like this. He said, today, you're sitting in a room full of miracles. Not just a bunch of humans made in God's image, which is awesome enough, but people who are Christians, because Christians aren't born naturally. The barriers to following Christ are many. 
the opposition, the hardship, the persecution, our cynicism, our sinful selfishness, our complacency, our apathy, the list goes on. You see, there are so many things outside and inside us that make following Christ in our own effort impossible. This demands that every authentic believer, every Christian, is a complete miracle, a work of God. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, no one can boast. Perhaps today, you want that miracle. You want to know what it means to be saved, to know the Creator as your Lord. You are my God. Perhaps you recognise you've come to the end of your resources. That is a good place to be. You can see your brokenness. Life isn't working. It's empty. Like King David in the desert wilderness, your song is simply, I thirst for you. Well, let me assure you, the gift of eternal life starts with a simple statement of commitment. Verse 1, you are my God. And then... Followed by one of intent. I will exalt you and praise your name. It's quite simple. And you know what? The walk of a Christian continues like that. Secondly, praise God for his justice. He deals with his enemies. Now if we're honest, as you heard Mike reading chapter 25, I hope you felt uncomfortable at points. Yeah? There's some stuff in here that's pretty nasty, it sounds, on the face of it. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigners' stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt! Hooray! You're, what? <laughs> Therefore, strong peoples will honour you. Cities of ruthless nations will um, revere you. Look again at verses 10 to 12. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled in their land as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down their high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. Isn't that a bit full on, Isaiah? Bad bad morning. (laughs) get him a cup of coffee um what, what, what do we make of this how do you handle these songs well throughout the bible salvation is not complete without victory god saves his people and he overthrows his rebellious enemies go back to exodus we've seen this clearly as uh, as mike has preached through that book God saves his people, but he deals with his enemies. Moses leads Israel out, following the angel of the Lord. They're saved through the Red Sea. And then what happens next? Pharaoh and his armies are chasing in a a fit of anger. They want to get their own back. And what happens? The Lord brings the waters to engulf them. Destroyed. Just in human history, think about it. V.E. Day. 8th of May, 1945. Great day. Awesome day. What had to precede it? D-Day. 6th of June, 1944. Enemies beginning to be overthrown. 
Here, in verse 2, Isaiah sees the city, which in chapters 24 to 27 stands for the world which is organised against God. It's like the New Testament Babylon. It's where we get the first signs of that. The city of man. We are self-sufficient, self-reliant. If you've seen the film Noah, I think one of the things that um, the director does very well in that film is picture the selfish anger, self-centeredness, self-reliance of humanity. He captures that very well. This is what's going on here in this city. The Lord destroys it, not out of some spiteful satisfaction, but in order to deliver those who have been victims of their abuse. Verses 4 and 5, that's how it flows. God cannot tolerate pride and arrogant self-reliance that's displayed by the strong and ruthless nations of the world. That bowing down, that revering isn't sort of, we've come to faith, we love you, Lord. It is, oh my gosh, this is reality. I am coming face to face with the Lord. It's the Philippians 2 bowing of the knee. You will acknowledge. And Moab is singled out in verse 10 as a representative example. The reality is that judgment happens to real people who have ignored God's real warnings. The image of being trampled like straw in manure is intended to disgust us. You can almost smell it, can't you? Sinful rebellion is rotten. It is nasty. It is corrupt. It is sickening. Again, that picture of swimming uh, against the tide, as it were, in verse 11, reinforces the stubborn self-reliance of people against God. No, I'll go it alone! I'm just carrying up. <laughs> yeah? C.S. Lewis captured the foolishness of human rebellion when he wrote, A creature revolting against a creator is revolting against the source of his own powers including even his power to revolt. It is like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower. It is like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower. God's judgment is not something we can ignore, nor should we be ashamed of it as believers. It is good news. The song of the ruthless is silenced, verse 5. Just think, every wrong, hurtful action, word and thought and deed against God, against other people, is reckoned with. God takes the sin you've been hurt by seriously. He will do something about it. He is doing something about it. He has done something about it. That means that in this world, the war criminals... The jihadist terrorists, the religious terrorists of whatever persuasion, the mercenaries will be held to account. The corporate embezzlers, the corrupt politicians will be punished. The sex trafficking gangs, the drug pushers, the gangland bosses will be brought down to the very dust. The drunk driver, the adulterer, the child abuser, the violent parent will be crushed. The academic who belittles the Bible. The colleague who laughs at the idea of a personal God. The family member who dismisses dismisses your faith as delusional and uses Jesus as a swear word in your presence to wind you up. They too will face the Lord's judgment. The generous, helpful friend who stubbornly refused to engage with the gospel when you offered it. They too will be laid low. And the truth is, 
that without the Lord's saving work, you and especially I, we would be dust before the Lord too. Judgment is good news because evil ends. Now, I don't know about you, but the tragic events in Paris still feel unend. So what? Lord, is that really it? The guys get shot by the police. Oh, great, we can wrap it up. We've done a good job. No! That is wrong. There's something more. Lord, there must be more. This is the day. He is the perfect judge. He hands out perfect justice. He's not rubbing his hands in glee at this work. I think it's important to hear the words given to Ezekiel. The Lord said, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? This isn't a tyrant God who's getting off on destroying nations. This is a loving, just, perfect God who is holy and abhors evil. And then finally, we praise God that we will be with him. This is ultimately the song that we sing and we'll be looking at over the the coming weeks uh, with Richard, looking at heaven. In December, we had Black Friday, didn't we? We had Cyber Monday. I lost count of the days that were named something. Um, And apparently, do you know what yesterday was? Sunshine Saturday. Yeah, because that's the day that millions of people will be going online to book their summer holidays. Now, when you look at verses 6 to 8, we're given here a taste of a destination no travel agent can offer. These verses need a sermon all of their own. Don't worry, you're not going to get one now. (laughs) But let me highlight very quickly a few things that again motivate our praise. Firstly, obviously there's a celebration feast, isn't there? The Lord God is preparing a meal that makes the combined efforts of Jamie Oliver, Heston Blumenthal, Gordon Ramsay, Nigella Lawson, and every TV celebrity chef that ever has been look like cold baked beans on soggy toast. If you read verse 6 at least 10 times, not only will you be on your way to memorising it, but I assure you, your stomach will start growling. Yeah? Your mouth will be watering. And I'm sure for vegetarians there will be a corn option. But <laughs> this feast it just resonates with God's pleasure. It's an Exodus 24 moment. It's where the elders are up on the mountain with Moses and they meet God and they eat. But here it's not just the elders, it's the whole of the people of God. It's a Revelation 19 picture. Eternity in God's home, represented by this mountain, is not boring, it is real. It isn't floating on clouds, on vapour. It is real life. It's glorious. It's in high definition. It is so painful it's that real. When Jesus taught about his kingdom, he frequently used the images of feasts and banquets to describe it. Why? Because he wanted people to get the tangible sense of what it's about. This is what will happen. His first miracle in John 2 is at a wedding. It's a celebration. What does he do? He takes 200 litres of uh, 
washing water and turns it into the finest vintage wine tasted. It's rich, it's extravagant. It points as a miracle to the, the reality of God's kingdom and how we will enjoy it. It's something to look forward to, something to savour, something to celebrate. And then did you notice it's an inclusive celebration, but it's also exclusive. It's exclusive because the feast is only provided on one mountain, God's city, the new Jerusalem. There aren't many mountains with different sorts of paradise, depending on your personal preferences, which you choose beforehand. Uh, I spent a bit of time reading through some major world religions and looking specifically, particularly within Islam and Hinduism, on their beliefs about um, heaven and the afterlife and Buddhism as well. And a cursory reading of major world religions shows that we all have very diverse and contradictory ideas about eternity and heaven, so we can't all be right. We have very different understandings of them. We're not all on the same path. We're not heading to the same place. There's one destination and one Lord of it. You've got to decide, will you trust that Lord who has revealed who that, where that place is? And yet it is inclusive. And I think this also helps us deal with the judgment issue we read about. It's inclusive. Access is freely given, did you notice, to all peoples, verse 7. From the nations... Now, these are people who have declared the Lord is their God, who sing the song of verse 9, who are saved servants, not ruthless rebels. And then finally, the Lord destroys death and heals our hurts. Verse 7 and 8 are beautiful trees. It's a great place to finish the sermon. Death is eaten up by the Lord God. The curse of sin against humanity is gone. The Apostle Paul uses this passage, uses this verse... In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 54, he quotes this verse to make clear the death eater is Jesus Christ. He's having a feast as well. He's eating up death. It's gone. His resurrection is our confidence. Death has no power over those who trust Jesus with their lives. But then the Lord does something deeply personal. What does he do? The Lord wipes away the tears do you know, in my research, looking at other uh, religions, none of them talked about where God was, really. It was all about what we get, how many wives, or what we can eat, or what we're wandering around doing, you know, or who's in this section and who's in that section. Nothing about God. Here, God, the judge, the saviour, comes and wipes your tear. He comforts He undoes the hurt you have experienced and lived with. Justice is served, comfort is now given. All the hurt, the suffering, the pain of this world is healed. The disgrace and reproach of his people is dealt with. All the shame, all the, the persecution, the rubbish that people have endured because they're saying, no, the Lord is king, I'm going his way. It all makes sense. Okay. You're right. I'm with you. These guys here, they're laid low. You were good. You're just. That's the song we sing. It counted. It made sense in your kingdom. And you know what? The offer to be on this mountain is true today.
It's here for each one of us. We have the King, the Lord Jesus, who drank the bitter cup of wrath on the cross in our place so that we could enjoy the finest of wines described here. We have Jesus Christ who willingly laid down his life, who was crashed, who was trampled for our sins so that we could be raised up to the mountain, so that we could be there. We have a Jesus who took our shame, our reproach, our disgrace on himself and then clothes us in his righteousness. This is the song we've been given to sing. It's the song for our journey. It's the song you need to have in your beats or whatever. It's the song that should be playing on the car stereo. It's on your playlist. This is the song God's given us to drown out all the other songs in this world that call for our love, loyalty and devotion. Will you sing it? Will you sing it? Surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation.